The episode you're about to listen to contains CPT codes. CPT is produced and copyrighted by the American Medical Association. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I am your host today. As always, our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank our sponsors at Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark. OncoSpark is a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company. Our disclaimer today is that our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on my 20 years of experience in the coding and billing industry, and I want to share with you what I've learned and why I love this industry. I want to thank my listeners for coming back and listening to me. It's been a little bit. I was on vacation in California doing some family stuff and, of course, enjoying the nice weather. Now that I'm back and getting back into the swing of things, I just, of course, wanted to come on and kind of talk about some of the things that, as a coder myself, those that, that have contacted me that ask questions, some of the things I get often from my students and others is really just an overview of surgical coding. And in one episode, it's not possible for me to give you all of the ins and outs and tell you everything I know about surgical coding. So one of the things I thought I would talk about today is dissecting an operative note. Because when it comes to surgery, that really is where the coding uh, has to come from, is from that operative note, uh, when we're coding from that documentation. And so sometimes just navigating that, understanding all the pieces of that note and and how we uh, look at the documentation and compare that to what we have in our books and how we choose that correct code can really, uh, of course, improve our coding skills. So just going to go back to the basics today, kind of go over the basic elements of an operative note and how to dissect that. Some of the tips I can offer you as well uh, that I've learned over the years, especially when I was a new coder trying to maneuver myself and navigate through that operative note, really, really helpful things. I'm, I'm sure it will, of course, open your eyes and help you see some areas where you can improve. So this is, of course, season five. We're in episode three. And I want to kind of start off by just breaking down those elements, right? So when you look at an official op note, you have those different templates, right? Um, and some of them look similar. Some of them may have different templates, different bullet points on that operative note. But you're typically going to find what? Your preoperative diagnosis, your postoperative diagnosis. And so when you look at your guidelines for diagnosis coding, you need to be aware, of course, for outpatient services what they expect you to understand with the preoperative versus postoperative diagnosis. Typically, what you're going to find is many times the diagnosis will be listed and they'll be the same, right? But then there are those times when you have your postoperative diagnosis that's slightly different. And sometimes, of course, that can be they go in thinking, okay, the patient has this condition. Maybe they have several conditions that they have, of course, seen them in the office for. 
and thought, okay, well, this procedure should take care of this, or we're going to do a diagnostic evaluation. They have to open the surgical suite, and they have to actually do a surgical procedure by nature to diagnose the patient, which is called a diagnostic procedure, right? Um, But maybe when they get in there, the diagnosis that they come up with at the end of that procedure is slightly different, or maybe there's other things that are found during that um, operative session that we have to add to our coding now. And so that's typically why you're going to see that post-operative diagnosis be slightly different than your pre-operative diagnosis. And so according to our official guidelines, we do want to code from the post-operative diagnosis for that claim because after the procedure, we're coding that right, and that is the final determination from the provider. Now, most operative notes, and of course we should see this, will list things such as if anesthesia was used, what type Again, we know that sometimes some code descriptors um, will include the type of anesthesia in their description. So that's definitely important. We need to know what type was used. Sometimes there's additional codes that we can report uh, to identify if there's moderate conscious sedation use, different things that we need to have documented in order to capture additional codes. Uh, They will also maybe list if there's assistance involved as a coder and a biller. Uh, I know I like to kind of not separate the two. Sometimes you maybe be in a role where you're just billing or maybe you're just coding, but there are certain modifiers that as a surgical coder, you'll need to append, even if you're not a biller. Uh, So if you are coding this operative note and you have to code two different procedures, maybe one for the uh, assistant surgeon or uh, maybe the uh, physician assistant, you have to know those modifiers because they are part of coding that note. a lot of times the biller is not going to be looking at the operative note. They're not going to know if a physician assistant um, or a a medical physician uh, assistant was used or if there was co-surgery, so to speak, right? So those are modifiers that a coder would need to append. And they would have to understand um, the requirements in order to use those modifiers. They are modifiers in CPT, so they are technically what? Coding modifiers. And then, of course, we're going to see if any devices were used. Sometimes they will list an actual manufacturer, uh, that implant maybe that was used. They list that uh, manufacturer, so we have that information. Sometimes we have to code additional devices within an operative note, whether we're coding for CPT or we're coding for ICD-10 PCS in the inpatient setting. Uh, I know many of you out there that are listening might be inpatient coders, and you have to code ICD-10 PCS for the facility which as you know, is quite different than coding for CPT because you have one code, right? A lot of times uh, where in CPT, you may have two or three codes that in ICD-10-PCS is captured by one code because as we know, we have a digit specifically identifying a device used uh, or an implant of some kind, right? That is left in the body. So those are things that we have to know. We're reading through that history or the indications paragraph That is really important and it's so crucial because that provides that medical necessity. It brings that reason for for that surgery into that official document because as we know, what we're trying to accomplish is to make sure that the documentation we have in front of us supports the codes that we're using. And a lot of that information comes from that indications paragraph, that medical necessity. Historically, we know that providers are very concerned with the value of the procedure, but again, If that medical necessity isn't there or we don't have the insurance guidelines well in mind or we don't understand, um, you know, what is covered and so forth, that can have a bearing on, of course, the procedure being covered. 
as a coder, if that is your job, of course, you're concerned with coding what's in front of you, especially if you are in the professional fee side of coding. You code that note that it's in front of you, what you have at face value. And then, of course, if you're on the inpatient side, you're coding the hospital stay, right? You have a little uh, different guidelines you go by. And if you're on the other side and you are just doing the billing part, you have to rely on the accurate coding from the coding department. But again, we work together, right, as a team. If there's a question about something that was billed, maybe the code, you would communicate that with the coder. If you get a denial for something, and then if you have a question about something that was billed as a coder, um, you need more clarification so you can code the next visit, uh, you may have to communicate that to the, to the biller. So there are things that uh, you may have to communicate with each other um, to work together as a team, which we understand. But as far as the operative note goes, there's more to it, isn't there? We can keep going down our list here. So then, of course, uh, we have, I'm going to back up a little bit. And I like to actually look at different things, you know, when I'm coding an op report. I look at different things simultaneously, and sometimes I will go back and forth to confirm information. So I've looked at my indications paradox. Because what I like to do is I like to, first of all, see my post-operative diagnosis, what the physician said, of course, was their findings. I look at the uh, preoperative diagnosis, and I look at my indications paragraph. I look throughout the note to make sure and confirm. So in that body of the note, that procedure details, that's where the description of step-by-step -step what the physician is doing, I also look there to confirm some of those areas where he, will he or she will document, con confirm for us that they're finding the things that they documented as a diagnosis. Because a lot of times, as they're doing things, as they're entering body cavities or they're doing an incision or maybe they're using the scope, right? Other types of approaches, they're going to document what they're finding as they're doing this. And that's going to be your added confirmation that your post-operative diagnosis, it's followed through that confirmation of that diagnosis. And then, of course, at the end of the note, they may give you additional information, uh, more confirmation, of course, right? So I have done my confirmation of my diagnosis. I have that part done. That is typically for me, especially when I was coding first, I would learn that part first because it, to me it was easier to get my diagnosis coded first and then I could spend more time on the procedure part and break that down. That's my personal preference when I'm coding an operative note. I want to confirm my medical necessity first before I do anything. And then I can go back and start coding my procedure. So I have the history. I know why they're doing the procedure. And sometimes there's indications, you know, tips on where to start looking for a code within that um, indications paragraph. Maybe they talk about what they told the patient, what procedures they would go forward with. And of course, you are going to have that procedure um, specific description at the top of your op note, which gives you an overview of the procedure's order. Because as we know, when they submit something to be done at the hospital or in an ASC, for instance, even in the office, they have to put an order in, right? An official order, what procedures they're going to order. The patient has to sign off on that. They have to consent to those procedures, right? So they put in detail, or maybe they just do a description of what procedures are ordered. Sometimes it's going to be one procedure that's coded. Maybe there's multiple things done, right? But one code identifies all those things. Then there's times where you have to code several codes. And so the question may come up as a coder, especially a new coder, I don't want to miss any opportunities. How do I know if I have missed an opportunity? And that's a good question. So a lot of organization comes into key into play and, and making sure that we have captured everything. 
But then there's also things in the operative note that can be difficult to decipher. Well, do I code this or what is this, you know? So there's standard operating procedure, right? There's standard things that are done on every procedure note, right? They talk about the approach to the patient. They talk about the normal prep that they do. So it's really important to do your research and get to know that information. If you're taking a coding course, they will usually describe to you some of those things or you're going to have an instructor who's going to walk you through those steps. And I usually do that in my CPC course that I teach because it's really important that you not only understand how to pass an exam, but you also know in the real world, right, when you don't have a multiple choice option in front of you, you can look at an operative note and you can decide, okay, what am I looking for? Now, like I said, it's nice to have that procedure description, the order, because you know what you're looking for, right? But then as you go through, you can identify other things that might be applicable that can be coded. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. As we know, the barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and a clerical issue. This new tool, AuthParency, optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time that a patient must wait. This platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and your electronic health record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Authparency's reports can also be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. Direct insurance verification and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to oncospark.com. That's www.oncospark.com and look at their technology solutions. We're also going to put the information in our show notes. Schedule your demo for AuthParency today and get started with this amazing tool. So it's always a good idea to, of course, I like my highlighter. I get my highlighter out. I get my highlighter and I highlight, first of all, Whenever I see something in the op note that I think might be a procedure, I highlight it. Then I can start, you know, going through and I can start eliminating options. Because if I look at something and I think, okay, I know there's a guideline on this. This guideline tells me that this is included in this or this is part of that procedure. Then I can eliminate that and include it in my main code. So when they talk about, for instance, the approach is so important. That's like the first thing I look for. And when I say approach, I mean, what did they do to enter the body, right? So we know, let's say, for instance, you work in um, gastroenterology. That's where I worked for several years. I did a lot of colonoscopies. And when I think the word oscopy, I'm thinking there was a scope that was inserted, right? And usually it's inserted, um, you know, as an endo, right? So it's with, it's going inside of, of an artificial, or excuse me, a, a natural opening in the body. So a natural opening is something that's already in the body, right? So we have our anal canal and we have our, um, through the mouth, right? Those are typically uh, the main endos that we see endoscopies. They go in an opening that's already in the body. Then we have other types of scopes where they actually have to make a small incision. It's not going to be considered an open procedure just by making a small incision. There is a necessary incision that's needed to be made to insert that device, which still makes it a scope. So you want to think about looking for a documentation that will specifically mention that, that procedure. So if they say arthroscopy for if they're going through a joint or laparoscopy if they're going through the abdomen, right? Wherever they're entering the body, if they have to make some kind of small incision, 
to get there, then that's still a scope procedure. That's the approach. Um, and then once they get in there, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. If it's an open procedure, you're going to see words like, you know, an incision, right? Or you're going to see open the patient up. You're going to see dissection. You're going to see some of these terms that would indicate that uh, something of a more invasive uh, surgical procedure was performed. They're opening up that cavity. They have to open it up wider, right, to get into that. So you're going to see documentation for that. When it comes to arthroscopy or any kind of scope, I look for like the words like portal. I look for those types of uh, documentations. Uh, those, those are diff typical words you're going to see um, in an arthroscopy procedure or other type of procedure where a scope is used. That's something I kind of want to just kind of highlight um, when, with that. And you're going to see documentation, maybe smaller incisions like I mentioned. You're not going to see anything um, that's really invasive. And like I said, sometimes they'll use the full word arthroscope or they'll use colon, colonoscope, however they, however they say it. And they're going to talk what they're seeing, right? And in those diagnostic procedures, we call them, uh, they're just looking around, right? The looky-loos, I call them. So they're just doing their look around. That's the diagnostic procedure. They're not doing anything of a surgical nature. Even though those codes are part of the surgical portion of CPT, uh, a surgical procedure hasn't taken place technically until they start to do something. Or maybe they're, they're going to actually use that instrument that's attached to that scope device to actually perform something. And while they're in there, they might do other procedures. Uh, I'm going to speak for ortho, for instance. Sometimes when they're in there, and they're performing a, a fracture treatment. They might also do a debridement. They're going to get rid of some of that tissue in there, uh, that dead tissue, and they're gonna devitalize that tissue and remove that. Um, and they're going to, of course, need to do that at the site of an open fracture. So you'll need to know that information. Other times, it's more on the surface, right, on, on the skin level, and they're gonna do just a debridement. So there's things that you need to know of as far as guidelines, right? Every coder that is coding should be familiar with the NCCI manual, uh, the CMS NCCI manual, the National Correct Coding Initiative. Within that manual has really important guidance for coders, uh, not just on, of course, it does go over specific CPT guidelines from the AMA, but it also uh, details uh, information that CMS or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services decides that based on their research should also be taken into account. Things, codes that are bundled and things you have to know about uh, from a billing nature, right? So whether or not your billers and coders are the same person or you have separation of departments, that communication is important. Uh, but I do recommend that coders have a working knowledge of billing requirements, payer guidelines and such as they're coding because it does have a bearing on the proper code selection as we know. Especially when you look at Medicare, right? Because we have to know, okay, if it's the Medicare, is there a code specific that Medicare wants in that is not in CPT? So then you have to look at what you're in your HICS-PICS manual, right? Your Healthcare Common Procedural Coding System manual um, that identifies your G-codes. So those are things that coders have to know that are on a payer level, right? Um, some payers want a specific code they've created uh, for something. And so uh, it's important that coders know those codes because if they don't, they can't properly code and provide that guidance uh, for the billers to report. So those are some of the things I wanted to point out as far as that goes, the approach, right? But then there's other things we have to look at besides the approach. Once we know the approach, right, that's important. We can kind of start out the next process. 
So we know that an arthroscopic code would be in a different area, or maybe we'd use that terminology in our index to look that up. So when we go to arthroscopy or laparoscopy in our index of our CPT code to start looking for our code selection, that is important. We have to know where to start. And then we can go to that part of the CPT manual and we can look that up. So like I say, we start with that procedure listed and we go from there. We go to that main page of the, of the procedure code book and we kind of go down the list. Now, it may lead you to a range of codes, right? So you have to then dig deeper and you have to look at more specifics. And this gets into just basic level learning how to use your book. But when you look at some of the symbols in your book, you see that that semicolon, right? Um, or you see that colon and you see that the main part of the procedure might be similar or the same for several codes. But then after that colon, right, that semicolon, we see that um, the description changes a little bit, right? There's some things that are included, others that continue down the list, and you have to find the appropriate code. And sometimes you have guidelines that you have to read, right, where they talk about how you have to code several codes uh, to fully capture your code. And what I'm referring to is your parenthetical notes, right? In those parenthetical notes or in the parentheses underneath certain code sets, they remind you that these codes cannot be built with these codes. Or maybe you have what we call our add-on codes, right? The main code is called our parent code. And then we have the, uh, what they call child codes, I've heard them termed as, or add-on codes, right? So it's important to know and read very carefully those instructions. If we have to add on another code, maybe there's multiple um, digits that were worked on and we have to add an add-on code or maybe there are certain indications that we have devices, extra devices, and they give us, you know, for each additional, right? Each additional one done. And it's very clear in the description usually of that add-on code uh, how much you can capture in that one code before you have to go on to the next code. And then we have to get into the units, right? You have to add units on. It's really important that we understand anatomy, right? And a terminology. That is a coder's lifeline. Now, some of the words used in those descriptions to the average person are not going to make sense. And if we're new to coding, we're not familiar with terminology, we might miss a code option because we didn't connect it in our brain that that's what the physician was talking about. That's the code that he was referring to. Because it's not our job to change the way a clinician or a surgeon words things in an op note because they're uh, documenting the way they were trained and what they know from a medical standpoint. Because some of the words, don't match up exactly in our CPT manual or ICD-10-CM manual. So we have to learn how to translate what the physician is saying, that provider, in their documentation and translate that into a proper code in our book. So that's why terminology is important, doing research is important, learning to look up words. Every coder should have a medical dictionary at their disposal to be able to look things up. And if you don't know what a word means in an operative note, you want to look it up. That is, I want to say, the best thing I ever did. Of course, my mentor, of course, taught me this when I was first coding. Her name was Rose, and I just remember her, she's a wonderful lady, that taught me um, how to code from an opera port. I just I will never forget the time that she took to help me understand how to code properly. And if I didn't know uh, what a word meant, you know, she would say, look it up. And after so many times telling me that, I didn't have to ask her anymore. I knew what she was going to say. She was going to say, look it up. So whenever a student asks me, what does this mean? What does this mean? I could tell them, right? I could look it up for them. But what good is that doing them? They need to learn how to look things up themselves. I'm not going to be with my student 
uh, every day in the in the coding world on their job, right by their side to tell them what to do. Not not a good thing to do to tell your student what to do every time. Or if someone asks you a question, maybe a, a colleague, it's you're doing them a disservice by telling them the answer, right? You want to show them how to find that information for themselves, because they're going to be good at researching, and they're going to, of course, be more balanced, well balanced coder. And they'll be able to pass that knowledge on to the next person because they've done the work themselves, they understand where they found the information, and they can, of course, help somebody else. So if a word is unfamiliar to you, you can start by highlighting it, right? This is, you want to go back and research that word so you can understand it. And that is a great way to know if the term that is being used in the operative note is actually important to code or if it's just information the provider is giving from a clinical standpoint that is necessary for documentation purposes, but doesn't going to necessarily affect your code assignment. So when you're reading that body of the note, like I said, step by step, highlight all of the, all of the items that you see that look like they're about to do something or they've done a, a surgical procedure. Look for that procedure. Look for words like incision, uh, repair. Uh, they do a debridement, a drainage. And those are terms you're going to see in your uh, subheadings, right, in your CPT manual. So when you go through, for instance, the orthopedic section, the musculoskeletal section. I use this as an example because I really, really love the way that that part of the book is laid out because it's by, you know, head to toe. From the the, the shoulders down um, through the feet, you have your body areas, right? And then within those body areas, it lists specific procedure types, incision, introduction, uh, repair, fracture, reconstruction. All of those things are listed there so you can kind of find your way and know where you're at. And of course, those are words you can use also to look up in your index. It's always a good idea if you're new to coding or you're trying to get better at it, uh, do your research and get to know your book. And really important. So when you go to your index, I know it may be time consuming, but take an hour or two hours out of your out of your week or whatever and go through the index. Try to identify words, um, the way that the index is wording things. So you're familiar with, with those words. Look them up. Start adding to your vocabulary, adding to your knowledge of words, because the brain is a, is a crazy thing. The brain can hold a lot of information, believe it or not, a lot more than we, we think it can. So the more we repetitiously look up words and get them in our brain, you'd be surprised. When I started 20 years ago, I looked at some of these words, especially when I started doing ortho several years ago, I just thought there's so many bones and joints, so many tendons, muscle, all of this. How am I going to be a good orthopedic coder? so much to know, but over time, I will tell you, I was amazed at how many words and terminology that I could retain. And then when I'm teaching, someone will mention something, I'm like, oh yeah, that's that. So, and then I am able to actually explain it in a way that's understandable to someone because I know it well enough that I'm not just going to tell them the textbook version. I'm going to explain it to them in a way that they can understand. When I'm teaching my students, I know that there are some of them that learn different ways. So I learn how they how they learn, right? And I can adapt my teaching to their uh, way of learning, the way they understand it. And if what I'm saying is still not clear, I stop and I break it up even further. So if we're trying to explain a concept to someone or maybe we're trying to talk to a physician, uh, I even like to think of my audience, right? There are times where I have to talk to a physician and they may not understand what I'm saying because I'm using coding words, <laughs> words in my guidelines, but to them it means something different. So learn to ask your physician questions in a way where they're telling you what they mean, 
right? So when you're looking at a maybe a paragraph or a sentence in your offer note, you have to query the physician. You're not sure. It's all part of the learning process, believe it or not. Uh, if you have a surgeon who really, really cares enough to actually help you understand, and they're, they're, they are out there, many surgeons do love to talk about their procedures and they want to help their coders, um, they're out there. Those, those are the physicians that, um, that I love working with because they love knowledge and learning just as much as I do. And so they appreciate the fact that we want to learn. We want to know what is, is happening to the patient. We want to be able to report the services accurately. So go to your physician, your surgeon, if you have the opportunity to learn from them and ask them to explain to you um, in, in their, however they would explain it to you, in this sentence right here, um, this is what I'm seeing and this is what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, or ask them to explain to you what they're actually doing in that procedure. Maybe there's a word in your code description that you think it is, you can bring it to their attention. I'm looking at this code right here. Uh, I'm not sure if this part of the operative note, if this applies, can you clarify? And so talk to your physician, ask for their advice. Go about it that way because we don't want to tell our physicians, oh, this is what we should do. You're wrong. <laughs> Never want to say that. We want to help our physicians understand we're in the same boat. We want to understand it too. We want to maybe be able to take what they have documented and what they've done to the patient. We want to make it to translate that into coding terminology. And so they hopefully understand too that there's terms in our book that don't automatically correlate to what they have, have learned and what they know from terminology. So it's a great learning experience for both parties. Like it's a really great way to uh, have that relationship built. You both are trying to uh, examine that document and make sure that the codes are appropriate. Uh, and the physician, oh my goodness, you guys, such a wealth of knowledge, these physicians. And so Look at, look at that relationship you can build with them as a great learning experience and also a way for you to build that relationship and have that trust, right? They trust that you are in it to be accurate and they, they just want to be accurate too. They want to make sure that what you're reporting to the insurance company is accurate, but they also want to make sure they're, you're capturing everything that they can get paid for, right? They work very, very hard. Uh, sometimes, of course, spend several hours in that operating suite with the patient and they deserve to be paid for the time that they are spending performing these complex procedures. That's why it's so important that we learn all of the ins and outs of operative report coding, learn to understand the terms that they're using versus what we're using and what we see in our operative note, in our code books, and we know how to explain that um, to the insurance company. I like to have really great conversations with my surgeons, uh, and I want them to explain to me, you know, uh, what they see when they look at this and show them the book, show them the codes. Some of them actually are good at coding. Some of them actually have a, a lot of knowledge on that. They have um, learned a lot of coding guidelines. So they have a lot they can teach you as well, especially if you're a new coder. When I was new, um, my orthopedic surgeon I worked for, he was so great. Still is to this day. I, I communicate with him sometimes and ask him questions. And he's a great resource for me. And so the more you develop that relationship, you can have a lot of things you can learn. Um, be really good at coding op reports just by talking to your physicians. So I know I was a little long-winded on that, that topic there, but I, I just love it. I love the fact that I've built such great relationships with my surgeons and my other physicians I've worked with because that is what it's all about to me. It's, it's building those relationships and working together as a team. So uh, to back up a little bit and just kind of go over the basics, you know, I could talk all day on how to code op reports and 
here on this podcast, of course, you can't see me. And so I can't show you my screen like in a webinar. I can't be visual with you um, in this particular episode. But I wanted to kind of give you some of my my advice and tips and things I've learned over the years that are helpful. So be a good researcher. Don't just obviously never code from the procedure description. Always code from the body of the note. You're in a way you're coding, but you're also auditing because you're looking to make sure that what code you have in front of you to bill are also what are documented. Because there are times as a coder, right, where you code from scratch, right? The physician gives you the note, they haven't given you anything. And so you're just going from, from what you have in front of you. And there are other times where, even for me, in an instance where when I was starting to code, my surgeon would write the codes on his little sheet he gave me. And it was my job to, to code them. Even though he gave me the codes, I couldn't just always trust them. I had to go in and confirm in the operative note that what he was doing was actually documented. And then there were times where I would go in and I would actually see other items I could pull as well. Um, he made a brief notation that documented another procedure that wasn't bundled into that main procedure. So I was able to capture that. Other times, especially with my shoulder codes, I knew that I had to look at my NCCI manual and understand uh, that I couldn't code certain procedures that were bundled on the same shoulder. So I had to do my research again. I had to bring to that physician backup and I had to show him why I couldn't build these two, three codes together. And he would ask questions, show me the proof, and I would back it up with proof from NCCI manual, from Medicare, from the actual insurance company I was billing. And that was great. He appreciated the due diligence that I did. I didn't just say it. I showed him what where I got that information. And that's what you want to do. Be a good researcher. If you're going to go to a physician or you're going to not bill or not code things they've submitted, whatever process you have in place in your facility, you want to make sure you have the backup to support. Whether you're talking directly to your surgeon or you are talking through your manager, your supervisor, and they're communicating that information, that it gets even more difficult in that instance because, of course, now we have to explain to a third party and make sure that information gets reported accurately to the surgeon. Maybe a lot of back and forth, right? So always make sure you have authoritative references when you explain something so that you can back that up. And that starts with, of course, you. That starts with you being the researcher, you looking into that information yourself. Um, so again, uh, make sure you have all those pieces of the op note clearly in mind. Uh, do your due diligence to do research. Cover all your guidelines. Match up your codes together. If you have an encoder uh, at work, which is great, you can punch in all those codes. It'll tell you if two codes are bundled. A lot of times that information is right there in your book, though, especially, like I said, in those parenthetical notes. It tells you what codes can and can't be built together. Uh, encoders are great. They don't replace our books. As you know, I've said over and over, do not let your encoders replace your books, uh, but use them as a guide and a help to make sure that you're coding accurately and that you're not reporting codes that the biller is going to submit inaccurately. That's the important part, right? And then again, if you don't have an encoder, believe it or not, you can get the same information from Medicare's website. So it's nice. Um, you can look at those PTP edits, the Medicare PTP edits, and I'll uh, put a link in the show notes if you're not familiar with where that is. Um, so you can look at that. You can do control F and you can search for your procedure code. And then on the uh, left-hand side or the right-hand side, that second column will tell you what procedure codes are bundled into that. It gives you the indicators. It tells you, of course, um, the modifiers that can be used, um, if a modifier can bypass that edit, and so forth. So all the information that is used for those encoders is actually coming from those PTP edits. And so 
if you don't have an encoder, you can learn how to use that spreadsheet or that information from Medicare. So really great information. Um, so, and as I go through my episodes, you know, I like to think out of the box a little bit. I like to talk to people about things that they're dealing with um, and things that maybe you're not um, familiar with. When I first started coding, I didn't know anything about the NCCI manual. I didn't know anything about the PTP edits, the fee schedule, all of these little indicators, all the things that as a revenue cycle, you know, manager, you know all those things, right? When you're, when you're dealing with all of the things that trickle down through the revenue cycle. But if you're coding, you don't necessarily know all those things right off the bat. Someone has to, of course, show them to you. And then if you're billing, you may not know all the little intricacies of that. But when you learn them, it helps you understand that full revenue cycle and it helps you see where you are in that in that um, that cycle of the revenue cycle, right? Or that that cog in the wheel, right? That's how I like to think of it. I like to think what what a part do I play in this revenue cycle? Everybody has a part to play. Whether you're a surgeon, whether you're a nurse, a medical assistant, you're a coder, a biller, an office manager, um, receptionist, whatever role you play, we're all collecting data for the insurance company um, and to report right for payment. Our jobs are very important. Uh, without the reimbursement coming in for these services, physicians and uh, hospitals and these organizations can't continue to offer services to patients. If we don't get reimbursed for these services, a lot of times you know, it makes it very difficult to have new technology or machines or um, devices that are so important that we use in healthcare. Without getting reimbursed for those, um, those companies won't provide those for us right? without getting reimbursed. So those are things, all of these things come into play in the revenue cycle. So we're all important in the revenue cycle. We all have a role to play. So let's do our part. So today I'm talking to you coders out there. You're dissecting that operative report. Make sure you're doing your due diligence to cover that information um, and to fully capture every code possible. Now at our upcoming virtual summit uh, this weekend for the OBGYN virtual summit, I hope you all can attend. Um, this is specifically for those who are coding OBGYN services. That's your 50,000 series codes. Um, of course, some of your radiology codes in there, your 70,000 series codes. Um, and you're also going to be learning about ICD-10-CM guidelines, as well as evaluation and management, uh, specifically for OBGYN services. So I think it's going to be really valuable information. You're going to hear from great speakers like Betty Hovey. You're going to hear from speakers like Shannon DeConda of Doctors Management and NAMIS great organizations, and she is an expert in compliance, which is what she'll be speaking with us about at this conference. Um, my dear friend, Barbara Shaw, who is a leading expert in OBGYN for so many years, is joining forces with me to talk about our procedure coding. So if you are interested in learning more about CPT coding and learning more about uh, the actual procedure coding for OBGYN or GYN services, uh, we'll be breaking up CPT and PCS coding uh, for those services. So much to learn, so much to know. We also have Kimberly Jolivet-Williams, one of my girls. I love her to pieces. And she's going to be talking to us about anesthesia for maternity care. Uh, Jordan Johnson, uh, the chief innovation officer at OncoSpark, uh, is going to be coming and talking to us what he knows best, and that's radiology services, to cover some of those services that we see in the OB and the GYN. So please, please join us. It's going to be a great summit. We're not done though. We have more this year coming. We have pediatrics in April, cardiovascular in, in May with uh, Stacy Buck and Terry Fletcher. Betty Hovey is coming back to talk about EM and ICD 10. And then we also have in uh, June, we have oncology with Jordan and I. Uh, we also have 
our big ortho summit in July. It's in our big event. It's usually our most popular with all our orthopedic physicians and coders and managers joining us for that. So we hope that you can attend that as well. Any questions about our conferences or webinars, other services, please visit www.ozarkinstitute.oncospark.com. We hope to join us for this year of great education and keep listening to the Life as a Coder podcast. We're so excited that we have so many listeners. We've now reached 8,000 downloads. Such a great, great thing to see how we're helping so many people. We're so grateful that we've had this opportunity to provide education at this platform. There's so many things that can uh, be done um, to help other coders um, and you know managers, uh, billers, so many people in the industry um, have so many different roles, right? So we wanna be sure that we offer uh, education for all of those roles. And so if you have an idea or a request for a podcast episode, you wanna learn more about the business of healthcare, please reach out to me and let me know. My email address is jmcnamara at oncospark.com, and I'll, of course, put that information in the show notes. If you want to learn CEUs for any of our episodes coming up, please reach out to us on our Patreon account. That's patreon.com forward slash life as a coder, P-A-T-R-A-O-N dot com forward slash life as a coder. You can choose different levels um, of our memberships to earn CEUs and great benefits uh, for our members. So it's always our goal here at the Life as a Coder podcast to inspire and educate. And you know, I always say knowledge is power. Don't give up on coding. Keep learning and keep growing. This has been Jennifer McNamara with Life as a Coder. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fass with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then.